0: Doing Acts chapter 13 this morning, what a joy it is to continue to bring God's word each and every Sunday. We're in the midst of Paul's first missionary journey. I suppose in the days of technology that we live in, it's probably as many churches know, we could put a big screen up here and just put the scripture verses up there for you to, to gaze upon. But there's a benefit to you having a copy of God's Word before you, that you can not only turn to the pages and continue to gain familiarity with your Bibles, but also see that what is being proclaimed and what is being read is that which is in the Word. Uh, It is a a good exercise. Uh, And even if you're here and you're not familiar with the Bible or you don't have one, there's There's one in a pew rack before you. And if you're sitting next to a saint, they'll be happy to show you where these places are in the Bible. As we said, we're in the midst of Paul's first missionary journey. Last week, we we saw him now begin to be the focus of the missionary activity. And uh, we went through that first recorded sermon of his last week as we saw how he majored throughout there. We didn't cover every bit of that because it would have taken quite a bit of time, but how he majored on the grace of God, especially in a place where so many people say they don't find it, and that is in the Old Testament. Now there was a point towards the end of this sermon Paul brings up two things that we need to be very familiar with. Verse 38 of chapter 13, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. Very, very important. And then the second thing that is just as important, and by him, Excuse me, everyone who believes is justified, considered righteous before God from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So this morning we have an opportunity to look into and clearly see the things that the prophets of old did not fully grasp, and even something the angels Long to look at. If you turn to First Peter chapter one for just a moment, First Peter chapter one and verses ten through twelve. First <clears throat> Peter chapter one, <clears throat> verse ten: Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you searching what or what manner of time the the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels desire to look into. Verse 10, we're told how they greatly desired the coming of Christ, the Messiah, and that the Spirit of Christ, as it's referred to here, the Holy Spirit was working in them, And they, with great diligence, went to see, wanted to see him, to see the salvation that he would accomplish. I think sometimes when we read the Old Testament prophets, think that they fully understand and understood what they wrote. But that wasn't the case. They had a basic understanding. They were led by the Spirit of God to write the things, but you can't tell me that Ezekiel completely understood everything that he was writing. These were things that God had promised to take place, but they would not get to see. So they, they didn't fully. Yes, they had some understanding, but they also read what other prophets had written. Sometimes we think of prophets as being over by themselves, away from everything. Many of the prophets had contemporaries. Uh, they would certainly seek to see what the other prophets were saying as well. It's not like Isaiah would say, Well, you know, I'm the only prophet, it only matters what I say. No, they diligently looked, they searched. Uh, Verse 10, they inquired and searched carefully the grace that would come to us. In verse 11, again, searching what time it should come and to whom it should be made known. They prophesied acceptance, but also rejection. And the Spirit of Christ was working with them. But what they searched for, believing saints now have. They saw the day afar off and rejoiced. But what they prophesied they would not get to see in their lifetime. But they had the certainty of it. Because God had said this would take place. And in the prophet's mind, if God has said it would take place, then it's it's done. That's why many prophets speak. Of things to come in present tense. Because if God said it was going to happen. Then it's as good as done. They had the certainty of those promises. God revealed those promises to them. But the accomplishment of them. They knew would come. Because they knew God spoke it. And again it was as if it was already done things which now have been reported to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit from heaven. What else does he say concerning this? Well, he said these are things that angels desired or longed to look into. Angels can have a knowledge of it, but they cannot have the experience of it. They can hear about it. They can get excited about it. But it has no effect on them. They sung of the glory of God at the incarnation, the birth of Christ. We are told they rejoice at the conversion of sinners. And they have no issue with being ministering spirits to those who will inherit salvation. But the gospel's not for them. Everything Jesus did... He did for his people, as we read in the Nicene Creed, for us and for our salvation. Not for the angels, but for us and for our salvation. Unfortunately, there's much about salvation that mankind does not care to know about. And even in the church is often the desire Let's keep it down to the bare minimum, the barest minimum possible. Let's not get too deep into these things. Let's just hear the quick start guide. I'm not really interested in in knowing the depth. I just want to know that I am saved. Often the world thinks Christians are lacking in intelligence and are gullible. And I believe that there are some preachers that are happy to keep people at that level. But when it comes to the things of God when it comes to the things of God believers have something going for them that the greatest unconverted minds cannot ever attain. And that is the work of the holy spirit. So today I take you where angels long to look, to what the prophets searched for diligently to know. And it has a lot to do with what is called the mystery of Christ. Again, it was in near the end of Paul's sermon in Acts chapter 13. And we come to verse It's been a strange week. There's one well-known man of God who's preached the gospel for several years, decades, that is. He made one bit of, gave one bit of advice that probably was not the best advice to give. But yet, what a piling on there was on this man from the internet and those around him. Those who had only been, maybe been preaching the gospel for a couple of years or, or something like that. Oh, they just piled on him. Because you know, we're really we're really good at looking out at the culture and saying, oh, look at that. It's a, it's a canceled culture out there. Say the wrong things and man, that's it. But there's a bigger canceled culture in Christianity than in the unredeemed culture out there. I've experienced it. Had people listen on the internet and they, oh yeah, we love what he's doing. And then they hear one sermon that they didn't quite like what I said. Oh, we're not going to listen to him anymore. No, 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 no. False prophet. False prophet. I'd like to throw that term around. And when people pile on like that, what they show is their own lack of depth. And their own gullibility. And their own inability to have deep roots. Brothers and sisters, we need deep roots into the word of God. That way we can withstand the storms. That tree is gone now out there, but there was a, used to be a tree in the parking lot out there. A big oak tree that was here when Hurricane Hazel went through. And Hurricane Hazel beat on that tree, and it caused it to have a permanent lean. But it didn't fall. And the reason it didn't fall is because it had deep, deep roots. So today we go where angels long to look to what the prophets diligently sought to know. Be it known unto you, brethren, That through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. What a sweet sound in the sinner's ear. It's very important. David wrote about it in Psalm 32 in verse 1. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. In Acts 10 and verse 43, to him, give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive the remission of sins. Oh, It's a bedrock truth, isn't it? A great truth, a necessary truth, remission, forgiveness of sins. Wonderful grace of Jesus. Greater than all my sin, How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall its praise begin? Taking away my burden, setting my spirit free. Oh yeah, it is something to sing about. Pardon for sin. It's without a question. A great source of joy for John the Baptist. We don't think of John the Baptist being a joyful man, do we? We just think of man eating grasshoppers and dressing camel hair and yelling at people. But what a great joy he had as being really the last of the Old Testament prophets in the beginning of the new. When he saw Christ coming and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What? That's, that's, that's the announcement that, that, that was even on par, if not even better than the angel's announcement for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. You know, Paul would say almost the same thing in Ephesians chapter 1 as he does in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 14 speaking of Christ he said in whom we have redemption through his blood even the forgiveness of sins So the forgiveness of sins is a major component of salvation In fact in the oh, back in the 80s D James Kennedy had his evangelism explosion and uh, I remember as a student, we had to memorize that and go around asking people, handing out tracts and asking people, you know, if you were standing before God today and he asked you, why should I let you into my kingdom, what would your answer be? And of course, it was to flesh out this, this uh, response of people trusting in themselves. Well, I've tried to be a good person. I've tried to do a good thing, this, that, that, yada, yada, yada. And the the push really was to come to the, the great answer and that is because I believe Jesus died for my sins. Great answer. Great answer. And while it's true, you know it's not the whole truth. You see, we read what we do in verse 38 that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins but notice verse 39 begins with what and there's something else we put on to this and what is that He says by him everyone who believes is justified justified now we're justified justification <coughs> means to be considered righteous before God. Justified from all the things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Well, the law of Moses was not there to justify anybody. He was there to convict, but not to bring salvation. So through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins then and by him. Everyone who believes is justified from all things. Which you could not be justified by the law of God. You know, in our confession in chapter 8 and in paragraph 5, the Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience, remember that his perfect obedience. And sacrifice of himself, which he through the eternal spirit, once, one time, for all time, offered up to God, hath fully satisfied the justice of God, procured reconciliation, and purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father hath given unto him the Lord Jesus by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself it's a common thing to speak quickly of the sinfulness of Christ and at great length about the cross of Christ but Hebrews chapter 10 and in verses 5 through 7. We are like hearing the words of Christ through the Psalms. Therefore when he came into the world he said sacrifice and offering you did not desire. But a body you have prepared for me and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure going to the back of Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Now, if we think the will of God was just for Jesus to die on the cross, then we don't know what the will of God was on this. There's there's more, much more to this. As Michael Horton wrote, God prepared a body... For the eternal son to be given, not only for an atonement, but for that living obedience for which humanity was created. Jesus himself, in John chapter 4 and verse 34, said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Well, when did Jesus become our savior? Some people say, well, at Golgotha. Right? At the cross he became my savior. And that would be the wrong answer. That would be the wrong answer. Christ didn't become our savior at Golgotha. It began before the world was. And went on to his incarnation. His life. And death. Let's say... I hope this is not the case for any of you. But you've got a house full of termites. And you call the exterminator. And after a long day's work, the exterminator comes to you and said, They're all gone. That's good, isn't it? But what's the problem? You're still left with the damage. You see, the exterminator didn't do anything positive. He removed. I say, well, isn't it positive that he got rid of the termites? Well, that you could say, yeah, okay, you want to go on that end. That's, that's positive, but he left you with a lot of holy wood. And I don't mean H-O-L-Y. So he did nothing positive. He, he removed. Say, another example, you're a criminal. And you've got many arrests for many crimes. And each time you've been found guilty. But the governor issues you a pardon because you're in New York. <laughs> the governor issues you a pardon and you are released from prison pardon says you're free from the crime. But what are you? What are you? You are still a pardoned criminal. And if you were to apply for a position, a very important and a very high-ranking position, and you go for the application process, and they say, Well, convicted felons need not apply. Well, I've been pardoned. Yes, but you're a pardoned criminal. You see, Christ secures our forgiveness. Through his death on the cross. And you are forgiven. But you're not righteous. You see you haven't done anything to keep the law. All you've done is break the law. And you've been forgiven. For breaking the law. But now on the same application. That says felons. Need not apply. On that application, instead of your name, Jesus signs his. See, what is set before us is what we call the active obedience of Christ and the passive obedience. Jesus actively fulfilled the law. Do not think I came to do away with the law, he says. I came to fulfill it. So he actively fulfills the law. John the Baptist says, Oh, I need to be baptized by you. No, no, baptize me in this way we fulfill the law. It's important. Then passively, he fulfills for us in his obedience when he's put on the cross, he didn't jump up on the cross himself. He was placed on the cross. Passive obedience. Now, each active and passive has a great effect on us. And even in passive obedience, he's accomplishing a great deal. But the act of obedience is his perfect keeping of the law on our behalf. The perfect keeping of the law on our behalf. Why? Do we really have to ask? I will not put Donald on the spot, but have you loved the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind, every single moment of the day? Have you loved your neighbor as yourself with hundred percent? Your sister lives next door. To <laughs> it was. It's common. I've heard. I've, I've even been taught this in the past by people saying, "Well, it was important that Jesus be sinless so he could be a sinless Savior. That is, he could." Die for our sins. Because if he had sins of his own. He would have to atone for them. Right. But he did not keep the law of God. Perfectly for himself. He did it for us. Because we couldn't. The first Adam. Plunged all mankind. Into sin. The second Adam. Does for us what the first adam did not do what we could not do for ourselves turn quickly to romans chapter 5 for a moment see how this clearly comes out of the word of god romans 5 verse 18 therefore as through one man's offense offense judgment came to all men resulting in condemnation. So what happened? God gave Adam a law. Adam broke it. He was not righteous. So therefore, through one man's offense judgment came into the uh, judgment came to all men resulting in condemnation. Even so, Through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Here's the catcher. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So what happened? Adam breaks the law of God. The first Adam. So why does Paul go into the second Adam? Because Christ is the second Adam, if you will. And he comes in and what does he do? He perfectly keeps the law. He does for us what Adam did not do. That's why in Philippians 3, Paul says, and he writes this, that he did not want to be found in his own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness which is from God. You see, Jesus was not only sinless, he was righteous. Not just a non-breaker of the law. He was a fulfiller of the righteousness. Now a parent comes in and says, have you been a good boy? And the child says, I haven't done anything wrong. Okay, that's one way to answer it. But in saying I haven't done anything wrong, it didn't say he's done anything good. And so we speak of the righteousness of Christ being imputed to me, put on my account. I'm now accepted by a righteousness by a holy God. A righteousness I could not have. My hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and Righteousness. Not all hymns hit the nail on the head theologically, but that one does. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. See, I'm not standing there as a forgiven sinner. I'm standing there in the righteousness of Christ. And God says, You're mine. You're accepted in the beloved. I know you you're probably hear, get tired of me hearing, hearing me say, When people say, Well, you know, you got to accept Christ. You know what? Your biggest problem is you got to be accepted by God. Turn turn that one around. You're not doing Christ any favors by accepting him. You need what he has to be accepted by the Father. And so my sin on the cross is transferred to him. His righteousness is imputed to me. It's not a two-step thing. It's complete and instantaneous. I'm going to close real quickly here, just for if you're getting antsy. you know, if you have a camera on your phone, there's two ways you can take pictures. You can take what they call the keyhole, where you've got it standing straight up or you can turn it. If you turn it, you get a wider picture. If you keep it the keyhole. I saw someone at the Grand Canyon the other day with their phone in the upright keyhole position taking pictures of the Grand Canyon. Why? Don't you want a panoramic view? And the trouble is when it comes to salvation, too many people are running around with a keyhole And you need the panoramic view. And the panoramic view has Christ on the cross atoning for our sins and Christ's perfect righteousness being accounted to us. Oh, how wonderful it is to have our sins forgiven. But it won't get us to heaven. It won't get us before God. Only his righteousness imputed to us, completes the picture, and makes us acceptable to God. Let's stand together for prayer.